Welcome to Misfits and Rejects, a podcast about the lifestyle design of expatriates, travelers, entrepreneurs, and adventurers. I'm your host, Chapin Cruder. Enjoy. I didn't fit in America. With cocaine, there's just always too many guns and too many bad attitudes. I quit the limiting stories. Really try to overcome that fear. And right there, for any of your listeners, a lot of what I was to do in the rest of my life was formulated by the fact I just went and did it. Hello, all you beautiful misfits and rejects out there. Welcome to episode 70 of Misfits and Rejects. Really happy to have you. Thank you for always tuning in and supporting Misfits and Rejects. Super happy to be here for you, with you, and just trying to bring some really cool stories your way, hopefully inspiring you to consider where you're at in life, your life situation, whether you're happy with it or not. And if you're not, you know, maybe hopefully one of these stories will help you make that change or take that first step towards a lifestyle that you've always dreamed of or trying to achieve that goal you've always hoped you could achieve. I don't know. I definitely find myself super inspired by the people that I interview, and I hope you do too, which is why I do it. But today, episode 70, is just you and me, a little conversation, not even a conversation, that's the wrong way to put it, just me telling stories and maybe summarizing with where I'm at in life. I've gotten a lot of requests over the last few months of people hoping that I could maybe share a few of my own travel stories, adventure stories, entrepreneurial stories. So episode 70, I figured was a great time to do that. And uh, I hope you enjoy. So sit back and relax and get ready because here we go. I always wanted to start a story with, so there I was. And uh, it never quite has the effect, I hope. So I'm just going to get right into it. But, you know, as many of you know, in 2000 and Three, I set out on what I still consider one of the most epic adventures I've ever been on. Um, I'm still learning from the memories that I reminisce on about the year I spent on the road traveling around the world with my best friend, John, episode 27. And the lessons I learned, I mean, continue to amaze me and how relevant they are in my everyday life. And how I still use a lot of what I learned in my decision-making processes today. You know, especially with intuition. Intuition is something that I think that all of us could tap into more deeply. And I strive to really listen to my intuition and be aware of it in moments of indecision. Indecisive moments where I'm sitting there wondering, what's my next move? Why am I doing this? I can't really come up with a good logical reason, but it just feels right. And that's, for me, always been the guiding light in the decisions that I do make and why I choose the things I do. So going back to 2003, when I set out to play professional soccer in Europe, you know, it was I was driven primarily not just by the idea that I could do it, but by the fear that if I actually didn't go try... I could be I would categorize myself as one of those blowhards, those people who talk a lot but don't ever follow through on the things that they say they're gonna do. And I'd always told everybody around me that I was gonna go out there and become a professional soccer player and I was gonna go try to play in Europe. And so after not being recruited, not getting drafted into the MLS, it was all on me. And I found myself contemplating what should I do? 
should I be that person that doesn't follow through with what he said he would? Or do I want to be that person who goes forward and, and takes a chance? And I chose taking a chance. And luckily, a few stars, a few stars aligned. I did have a friend in Belgium that I got to go stay with and who helped me, you know, at least with the living situation, uh, pursue that dream of becoming a professional athlete. And it was super, super difficult. You know, I was my own manager. I was my own agent. I had zero contacts. All I had was a little website called the International Soccer Server, which gave you all the phone numbers and addresses of pretty much every single team in the world. First division, second division, third division. And so when I landed, I used that to contact as many teams as I could in the first division to see if I could get a tryout. And then sure enough, I did within the first 24 hours. A European team, first division called, um, what was the team called? Um, KV Mechelen. They're about to get relegated to the second division. Invited me over for a tryout, a practice. I had one shot. I took the train late one evening from Antwerp. My boots in my bag. Found the stadium by foot, walking multiple kilometers to find it. Suited up. Waited in the locker room for, I was quite early, a few hours. And they gave me a shot. And I was definitely outclassed. Didn't really fit in at all. Definitely realized that I didn't belong. And they were super kind. There was actually an old trainer who came up, you know, patted me on the back. Didn't speak a word of English. But you could tell that he seemed proud that I had really come the distance and gave it an effort. And I went back to the apartment I was staying in with my good friend Alex Yee, who was actually playing for Royal Antwerp at the time. And felt a little hint of regret in the sense that, not regret, I guess, is the best word, but just, just you know, lack of accomplishment. And woke up the next day and kept calling, kept calling, kept calling. It actually took me three more weeks to get another trial. And finally, I did in a second division club called KFC Strombeek, a second division team in Brussels. And they said I could come play a game with them. And so the night I was supposed to go play, I took a train in from Antwerp, got off, walked to where the stadium was, which again, like I'm walking, I was lost, figured it out though. Um, suited up, the coach in, in warmups really liked my left foot, told one of the players to translate for me, translate for him, saying that uh, all he wanted me to do was to drive the ball from the left back position over the defense onto an a runner a forward runner towards the goal and me being me at the time and the headspace I was in really wanted to show the coach that I could play and didn't listen and instead of doing what he said I tried to make good passes through balls and just keep possession and after the first half he took me out I watched the rest of the game and they came in and said thank you very much and Obviously, was a little bit frustrated because I should have listened. I definitely felt that I could have played with these players. I didn't at all feel in any way that they were better than me. I knew I was in the right place, but I didn't listen. I didn't take the coach's advice and didn't succeed. And after that moment, I kind of realized 
I didn't want to go any farther. I didn't want to keep pushing. It was so hard trying to get these tryouts, trying to be everything for the manager to the the manager of myself, the agent of myself, the the trainer of myself, the nutritionist of myself, and I just knew I was done. I had accomplished a lot. I was happy with where I'd gotten. And it was time to really go out there and have an adventure, and I didn't want to go home, and I decided that I'd go out and venture off into Europe by myself and really quickly realized that Europe wasn't the place for me. It was too expensive. I had I had landed in Europe with $3,000, and within that first month, I had – no, yeah, within the first three months of being there. So that first month, I tried out. The second month, I hitchhiked down towards the end of Italy, finding that it was just way too expensive for me to have any type of, I don't want to say fun, but I couldn't really socialize with the other backpackers because I was living on the streets, camping, trying to meet people who were traveling like myself. Very hard to do. Everybody was coming out of high school, having saved all their money to do that one big European trip. And I was just this outsider, this guy who couldn't even afford a beer, you know, just peering in from the streets into the hostel windows, if you will, man, going, oh, that'd be fun to be in there, but I can't afford it. I wish I could meet somebody who's down to like sleep on the street, maybe pitch our, pull our money and get a box of wine. And I actually did. I did meet a nice woman who was willing to camp with me a few nights in the the streets and sleep in parking lots. And we had some great conversation and you know, it was, it was a real, a real test. It was a real eye-opening experience because there's a lot of different types of travelers, a lot of different types of adventures that you, you can have in this world. And I was subjecting myself to a life of poverty, if you will. I was choosing to not spend the money to stay in nice accommodations, even hostels, to not spend the money on trying the local cuisine. You know, I was eating vegetables out of the market. Um, going behind grocery stores to find fruits and veg, old bread, anything they would throw out. That's not bad, but obviously they have used by dates on they have to get rid of. And, you know, you can survive on these things. But nonetheless, found myself in Greece at one point, just realizing that this wasn't sustainable. I needed to go east to cheaper places in the world. And I didn't want to do it alone. I hadn't really enjoyed the whole traveling experience experience thus far, you know, being by myself, weathering the cold by myself, the experiences by myself again, because nobody was doing it the way I was doing it. I didn't have that person to share those hard moments with and say like, that really sucked and know that they knew exactly what I was talking about. And I called my best friend, John, as you know, from episode 10. And we, he came and met me in Copenhagen. We started this epic adventure. And a few things I really want to touch upon in this episode, you know, are you know, like intuition, as we spoke about, um, subjecting yourself to these types of third world sort of environments where, you know, you have a lot more than the people around you. And should you choose to travel within these locations or even live within these locations, you will find yourself at one point definitely being robbed. So I'd like to touch upon that, you know, robbery and how that feels and what you need to be aware of when you do try to live in a third world country or travel in a third world country. You know, the police in third world countries are 
not paid very well and they rely a lot on bribes and your fears which they play upon to extort a lot more money out of you daily in order to help feed their families or whatever you know maybe they do extort money only to buy things they don't really need but nonetheless it is part of the culture in a lot of these poor places for cops to know that they can use their power to take more money from you under certain circumstances and then there's also the hot topic of guns you know in america we are a gun loving culture and there's a lot of strategies that have been happening for a long long time that have brought guns under a lot of scrutiny and question and what does it mean to be in a, a third world country where guns are prevalent especially where i live in nicaragua and what it means to be a gun owner and use a gun when you have to use it and the circumstances that you might find yourself in when you do come down to that choice of should i pull the trigger or not and i have been in a circumstance like this so i want to touch upon that and then summarize with you know where i'm at in life and and so forth and so on so with that said you know going back to John and I traveling and using our intuition, you know, we, we kind of made a pact that we would travel as long and as far as we could on as little money as possible and really open ourselves up to the world. And John's got a tremendous intuition and I feel that I've really developed mine over the years. So, you know, if, if whatever life kind of moved us in the direction of going left, we went that way. And if it sold us to go right, we went that way. And even if it was off the beaten path, we still follow that intuition and that really led us into some really cool experiences and meeting some people that profoundly changed our lives forever and one was hitchhiking through Sweden on our way towards Russia and we were at a gas station trying to hitchhike out of a gas station and I was in the lead trying to get that ride and John was kind of behind me being back up so we we had part we had separated ourselves by whatever like 100 yards and one car had passed and John had gotten the car's attention and they had then circled back to pick us up and I got a little whistle from John saying hey chape I got us a ride let's move forward upon getting the car I realized that the car wasn't going in the direction we were going but again not a problem a new adventure and we were going to see where this was going to take us and it was a young man about our age who was driving back to his home and upon getting to know us a little better after telling him that we were happy to go camp by this beautiful lake that he had recommended in the middle of Sweden he said hey why don't you come back to my house we love having travelers mom's getting back in a few days and why don't you stay with us so we did of course I mean why would you turn down a, a warm house to sleep in rather than you know although it's beautiful a uh, a cold Swedish lake to sleep next to and as it turns out this is a, a family who had was had eight children unfortunately one had passed away during infancy but they had traveled the world for many years as a family uh, the father was an artist the mother was a huge supporting character in the family and driver of many of the adventures and philosophies of the children's lives who were just embraced us and and showed us a family dynamic I had never seen before one of just open accepting sharing kindness that I think 
was the forefront of what the kids were brought up to believe in. You know, if you had a piece of bread, no matter if there were two of you sitting next to each other or there were 10 of you sitting next to each other, that piece of bread was divided into 10 pieces and everyone got to have a bite. And that's what, how we were treated for the two weeks that we stayed at this cool little home. I don't know if any of you have seen Pippi Longstocking, but that's kind of how the house, that's what the house reminded me of. And the family was just full of life and love and friendly laughter and, and good food and just an experience that was life changing. And then fast forward to um, being in Nepal, Lily has actually born in Nepal, one of the daughters, and we bumped into her there and actually didn't bump in. We did have plans to at some point in the future meet up. And if we had traveled through Nepal, which we did, we, we would try to connect with her and we did connect with her and she started traveling with us. And as the, as the years passed, this family became such a huge part of my life that I've been back to Sweden now multiple times and had multiple adventures with all the children all around the world from sailing all over Europe to hitchhiking to just wonderful adventures to actually bringing me back to the intuition that I spoke of having one of the most significant intuitive encounters I ever had. So going back to when we met the family, as I said, there were seven children and, and when we were there, there was only six. One was away at school. Her name was Annabella and never met her, never even seen a picture of her. And after staying there for two weeks, moved on. And again, since we didn't know her, didn't really have any reference point to ever wonder who she was or what she was about and heard stories, of course, but she wasn't at the forefront of the connection that I did have with the family. So fast forwarding now to 2005, after being in Nicaragua for a year, I decided I wanted to hitchhike back to California. And now, as many of you know, I'm not super keen on hitchhiking, but I was still very stuck on this type of travel. And so a friend and I started hitchhiking towards the States from Nicaragua. And we would hitchhike until we would get tired of hitchhiking. Then there's always a local bus that you have to pay whatever, 25 cents to go another 100 miles. So we did cheat, which was fine. I was happy to always jump on a bus. And when we parted ways in Honduras, I continued on in to Guatemala. Now, I knew that Annabella was in Guatemala. However, we did not communicate on the location that she was in. And I kind of felt that I was just going to continue on through Guatemala. And if our cra our paths crossed, then if then great. And if they didn't, that was fine too. And so one, one day, I found myself on this beautiful lake called Lake Atalan in the middle of Guatemala. And I had been studying Spanish. It's one of the cheapest places to learn Spanish in the world. It's like $200 for a week, which included a homestay, all your meals, all your Spanish lessons in a little town called San Pedro La Laguna. Many of you know it who have traveled. It's uh, also quite a little party town. And I had met a beautiful German girl on the side of the lake who I had plans to meet for a date later that evening. And as I went to the bar in which we were supposed to meet, or actually when I did arrive at the bar that we were supposed to meet at, she wasn't there. So I sat down and had a beer and was waiting for her to show up, which she never did. And so feeling a little bit humbled and rejected, 
I decided to go to either get a little bit of food with the remaining money I had for the evening or treat myself to one more drink in my self-loathing little state I was in from being stood up. And upon, I could have taken, so I left the bar and upon coming to the crossroads, I could have taken a right to go get food or I could have taken a left to go to the bars. And I decided to fill my belly with beer, with one more beer, and I took a left. And I wandered into the first bar I could find. And they weren't serving the happy hour special that I was looking for price-wise. So I decided to leave and go find another bar that would give me that price point that I was looking for. And on the way out, I passed a table of girls and I walked past about 10 feet and something just came over me and said, you have to go back and ask one of the girls at the table what her name is. And I still, to this day, really don't know what it was, but it was something that was so powerful. And there was someone at the table so specific that I just had to know what her name was that when I walked back and I turned and before I could get half the words out of my mouth, she jumped into my arms and she said, my name is Annabella. And I have seen pictures of you over the last few years from the time that you stayed with my family in Sweden. And I've always wanted to meet you. I wish I had been there, but my name is Annabella and I am Lily's sister. And at that moment, I realized that by trusting that little voice, that little thing that drives you in your tummy when you are about to do something that you don't know if it's right or wrong, or you're about to walk down a street that something says like don't walk down there or you get that little tingle of excitement that something is saying like yes this is exactly the direction you need to go or the decision you need to make I realized that I needed to always follow that because it led me to her which was kind of in my mind the missing link of this really beautiful family that I had come across and so I really feel that Intuition is something that we all have and that we can all utilize if we pay attention and really try to understand and separate those little moments of whatever it may be for you. You know, if it's that little sort of like tingle in your tummy, that little bit of anxiety, wherever it may derive itself from within your body, differentiating between that feeling of intuition versus that feeling of uh, self-doubt, fear, whatever may come right after it. Sometimes it's it's very subtle and very sensitive and comes at a split second, but I do think that it can lead you in a lot of places that you're more or less supposed to be in. And I have found over the years that I have really practiced this that I have come across in the most random places in the world people that I have known from my past that I would have never, ever expected, ever, to see in these places around the world and they just happened to be there and I had chosen again to take a right instead of a left or a left instead of a right or to sit an extra few minutes or to show up early to a place and there they are and to summarize this portion of this podcast you know with the intuition like I am actually recording this from back in the states I have had to come back because my entrepreneurial side of me has not failed me, but hasn't taken me to the place financially I need to be yet. So I'm back in the States uh, doing the, the thing I need to do to make money 
thank goodness I have such wonderful bosses at Alternative Retail. Thank you, Scott and Grant, for always giving me the opportunity to come back when I need to cash up and recalibrate, you know, where I'm at, what I'm doing. But yes, I'm recording from back in the States and it was hard to leave. It was super hard. I felt like a failure. You know, the endeavors that I had been pushing hard for for the last few years, I, I put into motion and I saw to a certain type of fruition, which wasn't enough cash flow to keep me going. And I realized I had to not backpedal, but come back and try again. And I'll get into that a little bit later. But upon making that decision, I did it. I accepted it. I bought my ticket and I came back and I'm here now for a month trying to make money to then go back, which I will, and continue on throughout the rest of the year doing more of the things that I'm trying to do online to perpetuate the life I've, I've, I've been dreaming out for a long time. But the point of this whole thing is, is that as I was sitting in the airport at six in the morning, waiting for my flight to come back to the States, I couldn't help but notice a gentleman sitting about 30 feet from me in another chair that looked really, really familiar. And like I said, folks, I've been around the world a few times and I have met a lot of people from my past that I would have never expected to meet in the most random places around the world. Like I have hours of stories. So it's something that I've really used as a signpost to indicate to me that I'm on the right path. And when I do encounter these people, I become very at peace with what I'm doing, where I'm at, because I feel like I'm doing what I need to be doing in that moment. And that's life just saying like, you're on the right path. So I'm sitting there and across the way is a gentleman that looks familiar. And much like my father always used to do, he would get up, walk over and just instantly introduce himself and ask if he knew that person to which I did. I said, excuse me, did you by chance go to UC Santa Cruz? The gentleman stood up. He said, boy, yes, I did. How do we know each other? And I reminded him that we were in a study group together at UC Santa Cruz in 2000. This is 17 years ago. And we did a psychological research project together for whatever, a, a semester. And that's the only time I knew him at UC Santa Cruz. And I transferred after that, went to UCLA, did my thing at UCLA and never heard from him since. And there he was in the airport in Nicaragua of all places. We had a wonderful conversation. We caught up a little bit. I always thought he was a wonderful dude within the group dynamic that I shared with him in college. And he still is a wonderful dude, somebody who had an NGO in Nicaragua. He's now a doctor and just doing really cool things with his life. Again, another really inspirational person that I got to share a moment with and who reminded me that if I follow my intuition, I'm on the right path and I need to keep really listening to that intuitive voice inside of me that's going to guide me in the direction I need to go. So again, folks, when you find yourself in a situation that you're questioning, you know, should I leave my job? Should I break up with my boyfriend or girlfriend? There is something inside of you that knows the right answer and really trying to hone in on that thing and becoming more comfortable that I know that that thing inside of me is giving the right answer for me right now is tremendously difficult to do. But if you can get better at it, it will take you to places that you never would have expected and help you find things that you never would have known were out there waiting for you. 
So it's just something to think about and kind of wanted to close with that section of, of the travel stories on intuition where it's just something to think about and something to really, I think, strive for, just becoming more intuitive in, in the way you live your life. But, you know, going back to traveling with John along the way, one thing we also had agreed upon as we set off on this year-long adventure from Europe towards Asia, which was, you know, going as long as we could on as little as we can, which was I had $1,500 left in my bank account when we started. He he landed with 1200 and we were going to see how long we could take it. So one of the things we agreed upon, which brings me to the conversation of police around the world, which was if we should ever find ourselves in a situation where the cops want to take us to jail, we're going to go for the experience. Now, many of you out there might be gasping. Many of you might say that is the silliest thing I've ever heard. Some of you have actually, who have been to a third world jail are probably saying that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard because you would never want to go to a third world jail, which is right. That's 100% correct. You do not want to ever find yourself in a third world jail because the ones in Nicaragua suck. They don't give you food and they don't give you water. That responsibility falls on your loved ones. And I know this because I've had two friends in a Nicaraguan jail and they both said that it sucked. It was the worst experience they've ever had and they were lucky to get out under the circumstances that they found themselves in there under. So when I say this, and this is a little bit of a warning for this episode that none of what I'm telling you is advice. This is just me sort of rambling on some little bit of travel experiences I've had and thoughts that I have about, you know, cops, guns, robbery, and just life in general that I've learned from my travels. But when you do travel, you will, especially in these third world places that you find yourself in, or even poorer than third world, because we all know that there's poorer places out there than Nicaragua. But there's a lot of corruption and a lot of opportunity for police to play upon your fears to get more money out of you under very routine stops when you're driving or just circumstances that you may find yourself in that you don't speak the language, they're wearing a badge, you know they have power, and you don't. And every single police officer in the world is very honed in and can read your body when they know they have you. And so when John and I decided to go through our year-long journey and not do anything except for accept the fact that we were going to go to jail and the willingness to do that, a lot of interesting things happened, which I will explain to you. So we found ourselves in Russia. And as I said, we were traveling with very little money and the idea that we we're going to go as long and as far as we could on nothing. So we found ourselves in St. Petersburg doing what we always did, finding a cheap bottle of whatever, rum, vodka in Russia, as it were, beers if we could afford it someplace, and sitting in a park and enjoying the environment for what it is and helping ourselves get to sleep in wherever we had found safe to sleep in an urban setting. And one evening, we were sleeping on a park bench in St. Petersburg, and the Russian paddy wagon pulled up, came over to us, woke us up, and told us in a very non-English way, 
but was very clear that it was we were going to be arrested. To which we were said, perfect, let's go. It's cold out here. We'll get a nice warm place to sleep at least. Very naively, I'm assuming, but that's the mentality that we had. So we picked our backpacks up and we went straight towards the paddy wagon, to which all the police were shocked. And they immediately stopped us, shook their heads, and basically told us to get out of the park. And it was a very interesting lesson because what we realized in that moment was that they obviously didn't want us going to jail and that if you are either patient or you just agree with what they are saying with a smile on your face, a lot of interesting things can happen. And this is what John and I practiced throughout the whole time we traveled and since then, which is whenever you get pulled over in a situation in a car, which is most likely how it usually happens is if you're driving in one of these places and there's a checkpoint of some kind, or there's a, there's a, the cops in the middle of the road pulling people over. They are going to usually come up with, if you haven't done any kind of traffic violation, they're going to come up with a reason to make you think that you have done something horribly wrong and either going to say that they're going to take your license from you, which can be very inconvenient for a lot of people, take your passport or even take you to jail. And one thing that I've learned is with a smile and complete surrender to what they're saying with a lot of time, sometimes hours, they will let you go. And to this day, I have practiced this and have always gotten out of every single type of infraction that I found myself in if I had done something that wasn't illegal. Because at times you do do things that are legal when you're driving, for example, in Nicaragua. So I'm going to use Nicaragua as an example. A classic one is crossing the yellow line when you're trying to pass somebody to go on the, getting on the little freeway, the Pan American. The cops pull you over and they know that they have you for an infraction. And they're right. They do. They definitely have you. And so now they use the card of we have to take your license and you have to pay a fine. Or this is never said, but it's always implied you could pay here right now for a different price point. Now, because I spent a lot of years there, I do know the process in which they take your license and how to get it back. So, because that's always what I've done. And so I gladly and always say like, yes, I understand. Please take my license and I can get it back very easily by going to a bank, paying the infraction that they give me in the ticket form, and then either coming back to the location in which they are standing where they gave me the infraction, or in a few days going to the police station in the little city that I got the infraction and taking my license back. Now, because I spent time there, I do realize and know that if you don't pick up your license within a certain period of time, it goes to headquarters in Managua. And I've done this many times too. You know, I didn't pick my license up within two weeks of getting the infraction. And I had to go to Managua to the main police station, wait in line and get my license. And, you know, as I say, you know, knowledge is power. So because I have this knowledge now, I'm not intimidated by the police anymore and more than happy to pay the $20 ticket that, that I usually get for going across the, the solid yellow line when I try to pass somebody or whatever other type of law I break. But then again, when I know I haven't done anything wrong, I sit quietly and smile and 
just nod and say, I totally understand and I want to do this by the book. And if you have to give me a ticket, please go right ahead. And because they know that they have me for something I didn't do, they always let me go. And I've applied that in multiple different cultures around the world with more or less the same results. I think the longest I've ever sat and waited was in driving down from LA to Costa Rica. And I was with John driving a VW uh, pop-top van, a uh, Westphalia VW. And we were coming into Acapulco, hit a checkpoint. They made us sit there for four hours, again, with intimidating questions and this, you've broken the rules and this and that and the other. And we just were always like, I, we understand, you know, you, you are police and we want to respect the police. And sometimes it's beneficial to say we have police in the family, even if you don't you say, you know, my father was a police officer, my uncle was a police officer, and I totally respect the law and I would never disrespect the law. And we are a family that abides by the law and we totally want to help you with anything that you need help with. And you're always smiling, super friendly. And with time and patience, they let you go because the bottom line, folks, is that there's very few police stations in the world that want to have a foreigner in there that they then have to do paperwork for and answer to their superiors about. You know, I know there's obviously exceptions to the rule and there's probably countless listeners who have traveled who said, well, that didn't happen with me. I actually spent four days in jail. Well, that that is maybe true. But from my experiences is that with a smile and a lot of patience, you can get out of pretty much anything. And if worse comes to work, worse, they take your license or they take you to jail for a few hours to really scare you and then they let you out. But the bottom line is if you can, if you do pay bribes, you're perpetuating a problem. And I think going back to the intuition argument, there probably is a time where your intuition is telling you to pay that bribe to get out of it because this could go real bad. Or if you have nowhere else to be, your intuition is saying, just be patient and this is going to be just fine as well. So again, this is not advice at all. This is just something I have experienced and I wanted to share with you, but a smile and patience when dealing with cops in any country around the world will get you a long ways and out of a lot of situations that you can then go on your way and continue to enjoy the country that you find yourself in. But this comes to the portion of the episode where, you know, with all the the questions that are coming up about America's love for guns and the incidences that have been occurring you know, with the mass shootings in schools and Second Amendment rights and this and that and the other. I don't want to get into depth about opinions. I just want to go into a situation that has occurred that I can give you a real-life example of what it means to be a gun owner. And not that I'm even a gun owner, but being in a close relationship with friends who are gun owners, especially in Nicaragua, I had an incident where we had been robbed one night and John, my best friend who I live with in Nicaragua is a resident and owns guns legally. He's actually legally allowed to carry gun. And one night we got robbed and we found ourselves at two in the morning in a small little fishing village, which isn't even half a mile long. So there's not a lot of places to hide looking for the perpetrators. And all of a sudden, we we were kind of driving around up and down the, the 
the three little streets that we have and a car comes flying past us and we instantly knew that there was something wrong with this at three in the morning to have this car coming at that speed past us. So we were in hot pursuit, you know, two young men, uh, John being a legal carry of a weapon and me being somebody who doesn't like getting robbed went after him. And we found ourselves on a hot pursuit chase deep in the jungle of Nicaragua on the dirt roads to which we were about five miles, eight miles from town in the middle of nowhere, about 30 yards behind this truck. And all of a sudden the truck comes to an abrupt halt to which we slam on our brakes and little to us, little to our knowledge was that the truck was actually full of dudes. We were chasing a truck. We didn't really know it was inside, but we realized that we were quickly outnumbered as everyone got out of the truck. And I'm speculating at this point, but it was definitely at least five gentlemen. It could have been as much as eight because the bed was also full of people. But upon coming to an halt, we were about a hundred feet from them. And we quickly realized that everyone who had gotten out wasn't in our immediate visual sight. Some of them had darted into the bushes, but there was at least, you know, four or five of them right in front of us. And we did have a nine millimeter on us, which we showed, but that didn't seem to actually discourage them. That didn't seem to make them afraid that there, there was two individuals who had a weapon and this was puzzling to me and our adrenaline was going. So we moved forward and just said, Hey, we've been robbed and we would like to check your vehicle to which very clearly the leader of the group said, yeah, no problem. Go ahead in Spanish to which John checked the driver's side door. Now we're surrounded, pretty much completely surrounded. And I am on the phone with an individual back in Gigante, just kind of giving this person a play-by-play -play of what's going on in case something should happen. And we, upon opening the, the driver's side door, he did notice a computer to which the, the jefe, the boss of his little group, made it very clear that that was his computer and that there wasn't an issue, which John felt was okay. He wasn't going to push the subject to which then it was my turn to go into the backseat and search through the backseat. So I went to open the door of the backseat and upon getting to the handle, I, as I started opening it, the gentleman standing nearest the, the passenger side door, as I started opening it quickly stepped in front of me and slammed the door, which was extremely alarming. <laughs> to John and myself. And we quickly realized that the situation was not within our control, even with a weapon in our hands. And we, everything went completely silent and we all just kind of looked at each other and John and I backpedaled very slowly <clears throat> back towards our vehicle. They all got into their vehicle and they drove away. Now here is something that I find very interesting with a lot of the commentary going on right now with guns and teachers needing guns, which is this. Just because you have a gun doesn't mean you have any clue on how or when to use it. And the fact is that there's a lot of people out there who aren't intimidated by a gun if they have their intentions already set. So we can use extreme ones like 
a suicide bomber. You know, a suicide bomber is going to walk into a building and still blow up the building and kill himself, <coughs> even with security guards who have a gun. And so the point is that me being somebody who likes to choose, I do like having the option of going out and buying a gun if I want because I think I'm a responsible citizen. But I also have the intuitive sense that I don't have any sort of understanding on when it's going to be okay to pull that gun out and how to then use it to control a situation or know when to actually pull the trigger. I know for myself that I don't have that sort of understanding or training to know when that's going to be okay. And even if you do have it, the training, there's going to be an, a slight moment at times of miscalculation, or there could be a giant moment of miscalculation where a horrible regret can come into your life. And for me personally, after that moment, when we found ourselves out in the middle of nowhere, completely unnumbered, but with an equalizing weapon that we both felt would have been an equalizer just by showing it and then quickly realizing that it didn't equalize the situation. In fact, they weren't even intimidated by it. Made me quickly realize that, like I said, I don't have the, the training or knowledge of how to control that type of situation with my weapon. And should I come into a situation where somebody's in my personal home robbing it and I have a weapon, even then I don't know if I have the knowledge and confidence to use that weapon appropriately. And I'll quickly just give you another example. So about four months ago, I was sleeping and I could hear the doorknob turning in my room. Now, mind you, I live in an open walled house in Nicaragua. So it's not uncommon for people to come in, <coughs> friends, travelers, even thieves. And I woke up to a Nicaraguan gentleman standing in my room to which I asked what he was doing. And he had caught me in that twilight phase where I was confused and he explained he was a taxi driver and so forth and so on, to which I finally agreed that since he didn't have anything on him, he was more or less harmless and there must be some kind of confusion. But I was clever enough to take a photo of him before he walked out of the house, which he wasn't happy with. He was trying to block his face. And then upon him leaving, quickly realized that he wasn't a taxi driver. He was a thief. And the scenario played out very harmlessly. He got away. And so so it is. But going back to the guns and being a gun owner, this gentleman is actually a, a member of the community who I recognize now. And he recognizes me. He lives in the Pueblo that I live in. I see him every single day. I have talked to him and told him that I knew he wasn't a I know he now that he's not a taxi driver, that he is a thief which I said to his face, which he then was very sheepish about. And of course, he didn't apologize, but it's very clear that he knows that I know he's a thief and that the night he was in the house wasn't him trying to look for his taxi fare. But going back to the gun thing, which is had I had a weapon, had I shot him for being in the house without actually having stolen anything, a lot of people that I'm surrounded by in Nicaragua say, well, fuck him. You know, he was on private property, and if he, you shoot him, well, that's his bad. Okay, but again, like I'm, a, I'm an expat. I am a gringo in a third world country, 
and I will never, ever be accepted as a local. And I have had friends who have encountered thieves in their house, taken them to court, and chose not to press charges because the family would have then made their lives tremendously more difficult, even have gotten violent with them because they put their thief of a brother-in-law or thief of an uncle in jail. And it's a very gray area and not easy to really navigate through on when you pull a gun, when you use a gun, how you use a gun. And I think a lot of people get this idea that I'm going to get a gun to protect myself, I'm going to get a gun to protect my family. And they see a very black and white situation where somebody comes up with a, another threatening weapon and they pull out their gun and they shoot them and kill them. Or they come into their house and there's, there's a, a perpetrator who is physically assaulting one of their loved ones and they pull out their gun and they kill them. And I can say this, that situation in, in that sort of kind of black and white, very clear moment of when it might be okay to protect yourself or your loved one, odds are it's not ever going to happen to you in that way. And you are going to have to be highly trained and highly intuitive in knowing that this is the right moment and the right steps I take in order to control a situation until that individual makes it so clear that they mean me harm and then I pull the trigger. And that's really all I have to say about the whole gun issue. But again, I am somebody who likes to have that choice, but I'm also somebody who realizes that I'm not prepared to make that decision when that very gray area decision has presented itself to me because I can't really have that hanging on me, man. Not right now, but you know, I, I would like to learn more about it and, you know, get trained and, and then come to that another decision saying like I'm ready or I'm still not. And when that scenario should it ever come to be, well, I'm going to handle it in the way I handle it. And that's just that. But you know, robbery in these places is real, whether it's incoming in your personal home or just petty theft, you know, along the road somewhere, you're definitely always encountering hustlers and people trying to get a few extra bucks out of you or con man and all these very creative ways of, you know, trying to get something that you have that they don't away from you. Usually it's your money. And yes, I've been robbed many times. But one thing I've learned is that, you know, keeping the things you don't want to get robbed, leave those things at home. Or know that if you do bring that $1,000 camera with you, because you are a photographer, and you really want to capture that spectacular photograph of that indigenous tribe, wherever it may be, Central America, Africa, doesn't matter. I think it's important that you surrender to the idea that there's a good chance that that thing's that camera is going to get stolen. And again, keeping it in a safe place at all times, even hiding it in your hotel room is very recommended. But I think what I've learned from the travels that I've had is when you set out with your backpack, bring only the things that you don't care that they'll get stolen because odds are it's going to disappear at some point. And that includes when you do choose to make that final move to a place and you want to, you know, have that same type of lifestyle where you're living in a beautiful home with uh, 
the HD television. And that's a very viable lifestyle in a lot of these places. But then you have to be very strategic in those types of environments in which you, you try to exercise those luxuries. You know, developments are obviously a lot safer. But if you do try to buy that that little cattle farm in the middle of Nicaragua that's surrounded by other Nicaraguans who don't quite have as much, guaranteed that within the first month, your house won't have any of those items left in it unless you have some kind of cuidador or a security guard who lives on your property 24-7. And I can say with confidence that's pretty universal no matter where you go in this world that if you are somebody who has and you're surrounded by people who have not, those people who have not are going to try to come up and get something that you have in some way, shape, or form. And I say that with a, a little hesitation because, because although I think there is enough evidence to say that poverty can draw drive people to crimes of opportunity, you know, where they're struggling, therefore, and you leave something out of value outside of your house and they take it because it's just there and you shouldn't have left it out. That definitely is more prevalent in areas where there's a huge disparity between those who have and those who have not. But I will say that I don't think necessarily that poverty makes people criminals. There's a lot of very poor people that I know personally in Nicaragua who would never steal anything from anybody. So it's just something to think about. It's a tough situation for a lot of people who come to a place with really high expectations and ideals of a new lifestyle and how they're going to help all these people and then leave, you know, within six months to a year, having everything stolen from them and feeling unappreciated for all the wonderful things they did for this population. But getting to where I'm at in life and my entrepreneurial endeavors, I think that I find myself a little bit beaten down, a little bit frustrated, but at the same time, very hopeful. You know, like I said at the beginning of the episode, you know, I'm back in California for a minute, a month to be exact, cashing up. Thank you to again to my bosses who are wonderful and just so loving and caring and always let me come and go and are so helpful in so many ways. But, you know, I worked hard for two and a half years, really, really digging in and trying to learn this whole online business thing and coming to the end of, you know, one road, launching my online surf course. And although I would consider it a success, it wasn't as financially successful as I had hoped. But doesn't mean that I can't tweak it a little bit and then grow it in a direction that's going to make it more a financially viable business. And, you know, with this podcast, there's so much love from all you out there listening. I get tons of encouragement and um, people who I think really like what I'm doing. And I thank you so much for listening. And I do hope to at some point make this more of a viable sort of podcast that I might start a Patreon, you know, hopefully advertisers at some point. We've got a lot more listeners now, and I do want to incorporate that into my online business model. But it is some, it's hard knocks. You know, entrepreneurship is definitely the hardest thing I've ever done. don't consider myself an entrepreneur, but I am trying to build this lifestyle that I get to go around the world work location independently anywhere I want, have a cash flow that allows me to come back to my family when I want, allows me to get a hotel room if I 
feel the need to get a hotel room or eat at a fancy restaurant? Should I want and fancy meaning like not street food, but you know, a $10 meal somewhere or whatever. I mean, I would like to get to a point where I could eat a fancy meal and I'm not even bad an eye. That would definitely be the ultimate goal, but it's hard. It's super hard. And I'm striving though. And I'm driving and, and really committed to this. And again, I couldn't do it without the support of my friends and family, but this is definitely the hardest thing I've ever done. And, uh, this is one month of just life in my mind showing me that I'm not going to get off easy. You know, all you entrepreneurs out there who have, you know, worked the who work or have worked the nine to five while you're developing your idea and you come home from your, your work day and you maybe even put the kids to sleep at eight or nine and then you work till two in the morning and you wake up at six and you do it all, all over again for six months until, you know, that idea starts to gain traction. Then, you know, a year and a half into it, you can finally quit your job. Well, you know, I haven't done it in that way. In some ways, I do feel like this month is a test and really sh making me understand that in so many ways, I am blessed and lucky to have the life that I do have and lead it in the way that I lead it. Because there's a lot of people out there who, you know, are walking from somewhere in Somalia towards the Mediterranean, and then they're going to get on a boat and risk their lives to get to Europe in hopes of then finding a job or even starting their a job and making a life for themselves. <clears throat> now that is perseverance and those people have some very entrepreneurial spirit and ideas that I have no doubt there'll be a lot of success stories and a lot of sad stories that come out of that tale. But I'm nowhere near that and feel very blessed just to be swinging the bat as many times as I swing it a year back in California, heading back to Nicaragua in a month. Got a whole year planned of surf retreats, more videos and online surf clients and my surf course is up, which I hope to continue to market and which I will continue to market and, and, and get out there because I really worked hard and I know it's going to be helpful to a lot of intermediate surfers out there. It's called Perfect Your Pop-Up and Learn to Turn, a surf course for intermediate surfers and you know, I'm just always trying to strive and develop and give a lot of really good, valuable content to people who need it. And I comes from a genuine place. You know, I do want this to work and be helpful and and live the life that I've always wanted. So again, thank you so much, all you beautiful misfits and rejects out there. I love you and think about you and and hope that these stories and messages are getting through and and you're getting out there and and mixing it up and or you're you're on the right path and you're you're just gaining a little bit extra motivation in times like I find myself in right now you're just like fuck man this is hard this is super hard can I really do I have it in me to keep going and the answer is yes we all do you know follow your intuition listen to it you do have to sometimes take a step back and recalibrate and even though for me right now you know coming back was hard I do think that this was the best best possible scenario and, and seeing that gentleman in the airport for me was just another signpost saying like, you're on the right path, dude. Just keep going forward. You'll get there. It's going to be okay. But coming home was necessary and you know, you never know what's going to happen tomorrow. So love you all. And until episode 71, take care. Thank you for listening to Misfits and Rejects. 
I hope this inspire you to think about your life situation, where you're at, and possibly make a big decision to choose something different for yourself if you're unhappy with where you're at in life. I hope these people that I interview inspire you to go out, spread your wings, and try something new, to live a different lifestyle that maybe your whole life people were telling you was the wrong one, but when in fact it's the perfect one for you. And I'll see you next time.